I'm sports journalist and author Jeff Perlman, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Jeff Perlman and I were classmates at the University of Delaware and also colleagues at The Review, the independent newspaper on campus. If you are watching this on YouTube, you are looking at a picture of Review staffers from our senior year. I'm the one in the back middle left. Jeff is on the far back right. Philadelphia journalist Brian Hickey, an earlier guest of this podcast, is in the hat and red shirt. Anyway, everyone at the school knew who Jeff was because he delighted himself in provoking people with his newspaper writing. He was one of those people whom you either loved or hated, and Jeff himself would admit the imbalance on the hate side was immense. Jeff went on to become a successful and, surprise, provocative sports writer, and then an even more successful writer of nonfiction sports books. Barry Bonds, Brett Favre, Roger Clemens, Walter Payton, the Cowboys dynasty, the USFL. He profiled them all. Nowadays, he lives in Southern California with his family. Jeff sat on his back porch and joined me on a Zoom call for a wide-ranging discussion on where sports is going in the near future and even beyond that. Sports journalist Jeff Perlman, right now on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Jeff Perlman, great to see you. It's Back been a long time. Long time. 1994, maybe? It might have been when we were still students. I mean, that's how far back it was. But you and I have taken different paths. Uh, first of all, you're living in California. I am indeed. And it you is, love uh, I mean, it's 74 degrees and sunny today, and I'm staring at a palm tree, so I don't have that many complaints about that. But you can't do anything. That's the problem. Yeah, that would be... I mean, I can take a lot of long walks because I don't live in a city. I live sort of in a quiet community, so I can't take walks, And but yeah, everything is closed up. So it's... Yeah, it's not the best. So you and I are fighting blue hens. We're going to talk about some of the days uh, on campus at Delaware. Uh, you're a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author. I got a couple of my favorites right here. I read them front to back. Boys Will Be Boys, your book about the Cowboys, the dynasty, or they won all the Super Bowls. Uh, I hate the Cowboys. And so <laughs> this is pretty interesting for me. The USFL, people don't, a lot of people don't know about this league. You know, you and I, you know, we grew up with it. Uh, Philadelphia Stars won a championship. So yay for Philadelphia. Another great book. And I know you're writing a book about the Lakers dynasty with Kobe, Shaq, Phil Jackson, and I imagine, and this is a book that's going to be released later this year, I imagine the death of Kobe Bryant really changed the course of the writing of the book and the publishing. Well, I was done with the book when Kobe died. Um, I was at the editing stage, and I was sitting in a coffee shop one day, and I got um, a text from a friend saying, Kobe Bryant died. And I didn't believe it. I truly didn't believe it. it it reminded me to a lesser scale, I guess, when, when we were younger and the Challenger exploded and you get this news that you, it doesn't make sense in your head at first. Like Kobe Bryant being dead did not make sense in my head because I just spent two years writing about him, researching him. And um, the tough thing is the book covers 96 to 04. And that was when a very young Kobe was not the most likable figure in that locker room. And also there was the Eagle Colorado rape situation. So there's a lot of stuff in there. And you're thinking, uh, how is this, this going to play? You know, how is this? It's just, it's tough. When someone dies, it does change things a little. So I actually ended up 
just writing a, a, a note from the author at the beginning of the book, sort of explaining, and I do mean this sincerely, this is a sliver of life in a person's development. It is not the entirety of the formed figure who died at 41. It's who he was as a young man finding himself in a sort of confusing world. So that was the adjustment I made. It was a, uh, devastating, absolutely devastating. September is when the book is going to be released? Yeah, September. Yeah, uh, it's called Three Ring Circus. Uh, looking forward to it. So let's, let's talk about the University of Delaware. Now, you and I worked at the Review, which is the campus newspaper there. And this was, uh, not a lot of colleges have this. This is a newspaper where the students ran things. And we had our own revenue stream, but it was on campus. And we got to kind of do whatever we wanted to. You were the editor-in-chief our senior year. And that was possibly the craziest period in all the history of the Review. Do you want to maybe get into that yourself? Or do you want me to set you up? You know, Matt, I was thinking this morning, I remember a time I was at your place, actually, and there was like a party going on. Like, you would not remember this. And some female student came up to me and she's like, are you, are you Jeff Furlan? And I was like, yes, I am. You know, thinking, she's like, I hate you. God, I hate you. And I, I, I honestly, I vividly remember that. I was just, I was a horror in hindsight. I was just a train wreck of a, and I think you knew it at the time. I was a train wreck of an editor. I was irresponsible and took risks that didn't need to be taken. And the one I remember, the one that is infamous and, and is I did an April Fool's issue, which I was so proud of. And I still find it very funny, but we did some things that were just shouldn't be done. And the one that haunts me, truly haunts me as awful is there was a, uh, we were going through the old archive photos. I vividly remember this. We had like a cabinet of old photos. And there was a picture of a short statured student from years before. And we put him on the front page of the newspaper put the quarterback of the Delaware Blue Hens at the time was Bill Vergentino. We put his head and helmet on it with a headline, Midget's Fight to Take Over Newark. And I actually ended up getting a phone call, Matt, not joking. The student's mother, he was long gone, but the mother still lived in Newark, Delaware, and saw the paper and called me and said, do you have any idea what my son went through, what he has gone through in his life? It was so stupid and callous of me. And also one of the a very important lesson, you know, you have these lessons along the way, and, and that's what college journalism is for in a lot of ways. It was a really important lesson for me and a really stupid moment in my career. So that was me as an editor. Yeah, I, I know you wrote about that particular incident, and you, this was years back. You, you, you were very remorseful. Um, you did a lot of crazy things, a lot of dumb things, but I mean, when I look back at it, and I kind of felt like I was in the backseat of a car that was going a hundred miles an hour and a tire just flew off and maybe the windshield is sort of, you know, blackened, you can't see. I mean, <laughs> and I'm sure administrators on campus felt even worse than that. But I, I remember you as someone who, like, you thrived on provoking people, um, but you also caused people to think. And you also reveled in breaking the rules that don't even don't apply right now. A lot of the things that you did at the review that people thought was crazy and, and just undignified for journalism itself is stuff that we do now. The entertainment side, you know what I mean? I do actually. And I think, um, I do think it's interesting. You hear a lot in journalism, like you spend whatever elementary, junior high, high school and college learning all the rules. And then as a writer, you learn how to break them. You know, like you, you know, like you learn somewhere along the way, this is a simple one, but never start a sentence with but, right? Or never have a paragraph, just one sentence in a paragraph or one word paragraph. And then when you enter the field, you break every rule you're taught. And I feel like 
I definitely took things way too far. I was, I mean, I called for a soccer coach to be fired. The men's soccer coach at the time was a guy named Lauren Klein. And he, his teams were traditionally bad. And I called for him, his firing in the newspaper. And I'd never seen the team play, not one time. That is irresponsible times a thousand. It's not just irresponsible. It's somebody's livelihood. Like that guy has to go home and face his wife and kids. And some jerk 19-year-old in the newspaper is calling for him to be fired. And those are things that I really look back at with regret. But at the same time, without those mistakes, you don't, I mean, you learn from your mistakes. You do learn from your mistakes. So it was a lot of dumb stuff, but also a lot of learning. So, Yeah, I mean, personally, I started my career in Binghamton on the air, and this was in the mid-90s. And I had the benefit of making my mistakes in a market of, you know, it was like 140 in size of the 206 markets across the country. And I didn't have YouTube and I didn't have DVRs on TVs where people could replay my mistakes and record them and post them online and make me look like a fool. I mean, I did all the same dumb things that people do now. Just only about five people saw them while I was on television. What was the mistake you made that you look back and you're like, ah? Actually, it was uh, one I made here in Philadelphia where there was a meeting uh, amongst all the teachers in the Philadelphia Archdiocese and they were trying to decide whether or not they're going to strike. And as someone was coming out, I was about to go live and I asked someone, you know, is the, the vote a yes or a no? And we kind of did one of those crossing the paths where the yes meant no and the no meant yes. And I got it wrong as to whether or not they're going to strike and I reported it on the air. And the, there was a teacher walking by who corrected me. Oh man. And it just, I thought yeah. I was done. Those things will, go- I had a, when I was at the Tennessean, I was a cops writer. And um, I was reporting on a murder scene and I showed up at the murder scene and it was a, uh, it was in Nashville and there was police tape over the door and I called, no one was there. And I felt, checked the door handle and the, the doorknob was open, was unlocked. And I called my editor. I vividly remember this Dwight Lewis. I called him and I, he wasn't there. And I was going to ask, should I look in the apartment? And he's not there. And they're like, hold on, Dwight will call you back. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. All right. I'm going for it. I open the door, there's bullet holes, there's blood everywhere, blah, blah, blah. I'm taking notes. Phone rings as soon as I'm done. Jeff, it's Dwight. Whatever you do, do not open that door. And just, but you know, those mistakes, they do, they do steal you and they do, you can't have, if you have no mistakes, you haven't learned anything. I mean, you do have to learn from your errors one way or another. Absolutely. Hey, let's talk some sports. So how does someone who works in the sports journalism industry deal with the fact that there is no sports right now? I mean, for me personally, it's not bad because mainly I write books and I write about nostalgia and older days. And, and the truth of the matter is everybody's home right now. So as far as getting interviews, getting people on the phone, it's kind of a, it's, it's not a bad time for that. Obviously you'd rather not have that. Um, but for our, our industry and sports media as a whole, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sports illustrated alum I don't think that magazine is going to survive this. You know, I mean, it was, I do not. Um, different places all over the place are furloughing. I've, I talked to a friend of mine at the Memphis Commercial Appeal in the sports department. They have five remaining writers, and that's a major Metro Daily sports section, five writers. And who knows how many they're going to have after that. There's nothing to write about. So what do you do with your staffers when there's nothing to write about and you can't shift them to news because you already have a full news deck and there's not even that much in news to write about because you can't write about anything but coronavirus-related things. So there's not, you're not going to be covering the school board meeting. You're not going to be covering – it's just so tightly packed right now 
with a limited scope of what we can cover that I really worry, like the athletic, as an example, was rolling. The athletic is the, the outlet in sports that has been rolling. But what do you do when there's nothing to really cover? How many retrospectives can you do? How many look, looking forwards can you do before you're like, I don't know what, what else is there to do but furlough some staffers for a while? It's really scary. Yeah, it's sad. Um, let's talk about the league. So, and you know all these things, but I just want to run them down. You know, the PGA Tour intends on restarting in June. They already have set, you know, a, a skeleton of a schedule. The MLB is talking about maybe playing games in Arizona and doing testing with players. The NFL is acting as if they're going to start on time, although they have a lot of time in between. The NBA is looking into rapid testing of players. The NBA was kind of, I guess, on the forefront. They were the first league to shut down along with maybe the Ivies in college. Um, what are the chances of, of us seeing any of these leagues actually play games, whether there are people there to see them or not? I think very slim. Um, I don't think we're going to have a baseball season. That's my guess. I actually, it's funny. I talked to uh, the other day, a friend of mine, I don't have that many friends from when I cover baseball, guys who played, but one who's really remained a good friend is former Phillies catcher, Sal Fasano. And uh, Sal, yes, the best. That's, that's like a deep cut there. Very deep. And uh, Sal's now the uh, catching coach of the Atlanta Braves. And before baseball even discussed the whole spring training plan of a, a league in Arizona, a league in Florida, Sal said to me, it's like, this is what I think baseball should do. I think we should have one league in Florida, one league in Arizona. We'll just for one year, we're going to have totally different. We'll just have two divisions, Arizona and Florida. We'll have no fans at any of the games. Um, we'll just have players, umpires, we'll televise them all. We'll have a shortened season and then we'll have a championship. And he was the first guy. And I, there are parts of that idea that I think are really good, um, but I just don't see how logistically it works because can you really protect the safety of all these people involved? And a baseball, having a baseball game and especially televising the games doesn't just involve 26 men on this team, 26 men on this team meet at the field. There are just too many, too many people involved, travel involved, et cetera. And the NFL is a really fascinating one. In a way, from a business standpoint, I think the NFL is being very smart about it, which is it all feels like it's going to happen, right? Like the draft is coming up. It's going to happen. Free agency, the debates about will Tom Brady, what will he be like when he plays for Tampa Bay? Uh, the Chargers announced new uniforms today. Wow, these uniforms are going to be going to look great and so and so. It all feels inevitable. And I think that's a smart business model to keep fans engaged because, you know, NBA fans have sort of given up on the season. I live out here in the, you know, the just the epicenter of basketball right now, which is Lakers Clippers. Nobody's talking about it. I mean, literally nobody's talking about it. And it was the topic out here by far over everything. And it feels like the NFL still somehow or another feels relevant and inevitable, even though it's not. And I think that's a, from a business standpoint, I actually think it's a pretty smart way to go. Yeah, we'll see with the NFL. Uh, so you're, you're thinking the MLB and the NBA, probably a lost cause. Tell me what you think about the PGA Tour. Now, this is a sport where there's very little contact. But again, like you said, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that needs to take place to put a tournament on, even if fans are not there. I read somewhere where they might be able to reduce the amount of people to any set event to like 65 people. What do you think about the PGA Tour trying to get things going in about a couple of months? I actually think we're going to be able to tell in a few weeks with these states that are uh, basically uh, cutting back on restrictions, like Georgia, Texas, South Carolina. I actually think those are going to be really interesting bellwethers, whether cases of coronavirus just explode or somehow 
they come up with this philosophy where we're able to sort of contain it and live little parts of life. Um, if all of a sudden Georgia goes from X number of cases to 10 times that, and Texas goes from X cases to 10 times that, I think the idea of, oh, we can hold golf tournaments is going to seem preposterous and no one's going to go for it. But if somehow or another, against all odds, these states are able to keep it in check, I think it'll open up minds and ideas to different ways we can go. I really do. I think it comes down to how it plays out in the next couple of weeks. And how about this? So you have, let's say there's a marginal player on the PGA Tour who just got his card. He wants to play. I mean, he wants to go out there. He might, you know, be willing to take a little bit more risk. Then you got someone like, let's say, Bryce Harper with the Phillies. The guy doesn't need any money anymore, you know, but he loves the game of baseball. But do you see a player who doesn't have that component of, oh, I need to play, I need to prove myself, I need more money, to say, listen, this is too risky. You guys go ahead. I'm, I'm going to stay home. So I think it's interesting. So I cover baseball very closely. And of all the sports I cover, baseball is by far the most cocooned from society. These are not – the NBA, you would always see guys either reading news on their phone, they'd be talking about what's going on in politics, blah, blah, blah. Baseball is a very cocooned world. And it tends to be a very socially conservative world as well. I could easily see a lot of those players being like, let's just play. This is ridiculous. This is enough enough interference, enough government interference, let's us play. And the players themselves putting pressure on Major League Baseball. I don't know if that will impact anything. I can't see LeBron James and Kevin Durant being like, eh, safety, whatever. This is, you know, like, this is all government conspiracy or whatever. I just, I don't think that's the NBA world. But I really could. I think Major League Baseball players, they're not really focused on the news and the world. I just, I've never seen that. It's more of a very, like, I need to get my reps. I need to get my reps. I need to throw. I need to hit. I need to be in the cage. And I could see those kind of outlooks impacting the way that sports move forward. Is it almost like a red state, blue state situation where the NBA is you know, collected mostly in urban environments and you have like minor league teams spread out all across the country? Yeah, I would say that. I think, I mean, to be blunt, baseball is a very white conservative sport. The NBA is a much more diverse sport. I mean, Obviously, every major league clubhouse has pockets of, you know, Latin American players, a couple of Japanese players, but generally it's a pretty white conservative world. Um, yeah, I do think much like the nation, sports are divided. And the interesting place is the NFL, which is actually the merging of both. You know, you have guys from Iowa and you have guys from, you know, South Central L.A. And, but, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think sports are disconnected from that at all. Are you a Mets fan? I'm trying to I, grew up a, I grew up a Mets fan. Okay, what, do you have to be like a Dodgers fan out there or something? Or No, we just, uh, you know, we live 15 minutes from the Angels Stadium. It's, a, it's an awful stadium, but we go to about 20 games a year, so it's, you, know, you get tickets for five bucks, so it's pretty oh, good. I, I'd love to see Mike Trout play in person. I've never, I've never been yeah. able to do that. So what do you, let's say the MLB is able to play games without fans. What would a Phillies-Mets game be like without any fans? It would be... It'd be like going to a University of Delaware baseball game in 1992, which is, you know, you hear a lot of that, which I did attend. You hear a lot of, you hear ping and you hear pop and you hear everything. But I just, for me personally, probably for you too, like baseball in and of itself to watch nine innings, even when I was covering the game, it's not super exciting, but it's the rhythms of the game and it's the rhythms of the experience. And it's, I, I this sounds schmaltzy, but I mean it with everything I have. It's sitting with your kid and eating popcorn or two hot dogs and drinking a soda and talking about the kids in his second grade class, or it's walking around the stadium and trying to sneak into lower seats when the usher's not looking, 
or, you know, it's just, it's about that experience. So just sitting in an empty stadium, it would be like going to a carnival without, you know, the carnival. I just, for me, it wouldn't watch it. I would watch it on TV because I'm bored out of my mind, but otherwise it wouldn't have the same zest to me. Yeah, sure. What do you think is the last major sport to recover from this or one that might teeter on the verge of, I, I know the XFL has declared bankruptcy and I, I think you would agree that's a fringe sport. Which major sports in kind of a little bit of trouble right here? Well, I just want to say, mentioning the XFL, I had a really sad, so um, Andrew Luck's dad, Oliver Luck, who played in the NFL for several years, he was a commissioner of the XFL. Great guy. He actually was writing me emails about the USFL book, asking if there were lessons to be learned from the USFL. Hmm. And we stayed in touch, stayed in touch. The announcement comes out that the XFL is ceasing operations. I send Oliver Luck an email the next day, and the email bounces back because the XFL does no longer just ended their email. I just like that, and I was, I was really hurt for that guy because he's a. Gen- I'm not saying the product was that great, but he was a really he's a really good guy. Um, I think baseball. This is, I just if you think about the impact of the '94 strike, and I know that was a lot of that was anger at the players and and anger at the owners, and you can't really have that anger with this. But baseball is kind of baseball feels on the fringe a lot. Like I. My kids are, I know your son plays baseball. My, my kids are 16 and 13. I don't know any of their friends who could name more than three major league baseball players. And it just feels like a sport that has kind of isolated itself a little bit. And I don't know how many hits baseball can take because kids don't view it as that cool. You never see, when I was growing up, I could name every player on almost every roster everywhere. I don't, my son can name three. He can name Mike Trout and maybe Bryce Harper, you know, um, it's just, so I think baseball is going to have a hard-ish time bouncing back if this season is killed completely. I was wondering if you're going to say soccer, and now I'm kind of wondering myself. It's, soccer doesn't seem to have as much invested in players and in stadiums. Maybe they just don't have that much money on the table that they can kind of ride through this. Now I'm talking also, about the MLS. Yeah, right. I, I just feel like the thing about soccer is it's really carried by the international community. Like the, the MLS is an offspring of the world, and – the passion for soccer around the world, I just think is strong enough that it could carry the MLS through a down or an off season. But I don't know, baseball, it just feels, uh, I've been thinking about this for years. It just feels like it's in a little bit, it's trying to figure out how to be cool and how to connect with younger fans. And it's really struggling. And I just think vanishing for a year is not an anecdote to fix that. NHL. I think the NHL has a, it's never going to be, it's never going to overtake the big, the three ahead of it, even baseball. But I feel like hockey has its, its loyal, 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 hardcore base of fans that will stick with it. What do you think this is going to do to college players and college sports? I mean, on the one hand, it's an equalizer because everyone's going through it together, right? So it's not like uh, Oklahoma is going to suffer and Delaware is going to be okay. You know, every team – that was a gratuitous Delaware reference, by the way. Every um, <laughs> Keep them coming. <laughs> what would Bill Vergantino do right now? Every, um, every program is going to have to face the same quandaries, which is recruiting. The NCAA is going to have to figure out what it's going to do about eligibility issues. If a year is skipped, are we going to allow, you know, guys to come back an extra year? I mean, it's just, there are a lot of questions the NCAA is going to have to answer, but I don't feel like one program is going to thrive and another program is going to be hurt. They're all just, it's just an equalizer with a lot of things to figure out. Do you see high school sports like Friday night lights this fall? Football teams taking the field, moms and dads in the stands. 
Here's the thing. I mean, this is this is what it comes down to. I keep thinking about this over and over. That's a, it's like a great, great question. So let's say two months from now, it's like, okay, everyone, we're good. We're good. Everyone, we're good. But we know we're not really good. We're just better than we were. Are people going to be in a rush to stand with 2,000 other people surrounding them without masks, cheering loudly? So, yeah, you know, mouth open, uh, sneezing, coughing, uh, burping, whatever, you know, everything that goes on in a game, eating, hands, shaking hands, high fives, all this stuff that comes with sports. Even if two months from now, it's like, all right, we have really gotten this under control. We're good. Are people going to feel comfortable in that environment? For my speaking for myself, I don't think I would because then I'm thinking, and tomorrow I'm going to go see my parents who are both in their seventies. And I'm going to see my wife's grandma who's a hundred. Am I, am I going to take what I got from that game with me just to watch a sporting event? I, I don't, would you? I don't know. I mean, it's it's it feels like a million years between now and then. Yeah. And I mean, personally, I'd say ask me in late August how yeah. I feel. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one more thing about football: the next Super Bowl, Super Bowl Fifty Five, is yeah. scheduled for February seventh of next year in Tampa, Florida, of all places, home of Tom Brady. Would you buy a ticket? How much is it costing me? Uh, let's say the typical usual price. No, you know what? This is one thing that happens. I've covered, I mean, I've got 20 something years now of sports coverage. I, I can't, I don't know any sporting event where I would pay more than 20 bucks to go to a game at this point in my life, just because I've had so much free access and so much spoilage over the years. Now, if you said a really good concert, I might consider it, but I don't, I don't think the Super Bowl I would actually. Would you? I've never been to a Super Bowl. Uh, yeah. I've been to an NFC Championship game, the Eagles, uh, Tampa Bay, Buccaneers, where they got throttled, embarrassed. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't make any plans for this calendar year and maybe a couple months into the next one. Yeah. I just think you and I, I there are a lot of people, I, literally, I just talked to my neighbors and they're like, yeah, it'll all be better. I was like, oh, I feel bad today. And I'm like, nah, it'll be all be better in a couple of weeks. And I'm just like, no, like that's not how this is. Go- I'm not saying it's not going to get better, but this whole like mentality of a couple weeks, everything will be. I just think people need to be a little more aware that this is a long, long term thing. And, you know, those tickets you have for the game in May, you're not going. Yeah. So we talked about how this could be pushing some sports journalism outfits over a cliff. Do you see a recalibration when it comes to TV contracts with the major sports? Ah, that's a good question. I mean, it's a really interesting and complicated situation because you're, you have contracts that are, are that they're technically being violated because there are no games to air and you have a con, you know, here's the agreement that we're going to air a hundred X number of games and now we can't air them or we have a 16 game contract with you. I just think there's going to have to be a universal agreement between um, leagues and, and, and networks that this was just, again, almost like the NSA, this was just a freak bip in the radar and there was nothing you could do and there's nothing we could do and we're just going to move on to the next season and i don't think it's going to decrease the value of sports programming um because i think people are hungry for it that is definitely one thing i keep hearing over and over again people are hungry for it. that's why people are watching reruns of games that's why the last dance michael jordan doc is becoming this phenom already just two episodes in because people are so hungry for any kind of sports programming so I don't think it's going to hurt the value. I just think they're going to have to figure out how to sort of move past what isn't being shown. What might end up being better about sports after this? 
You know what's interesting? Did you watch The Last Dance, the first episode? I haven't gotten to it yet because I have Better Call Saul and Dispatches from Elsewhere and all this other free time that I have on my hands, but I am intending on watching the whole thing. All right, so this is what it did for me. And I almost, I'm not joking, I got almost teary watching some of it. It reminded me how freaking great Michael Jordan was. And I know that sounds dumb, right? Because Jordan, he's Jordan. But like, we had Kobe after him, we had LeBron, we had Shaq, we have Kevin Durant. And it's always this thing where you think about the current guy and watching Jordan and watching what he did and the acrobatics and the carrying of a team. For me, it was like, oh yeah, this guy really was the greatest basketball player we've ever seen. And everything that Kobe did, Jordan did first. Everything LeBron's doing, Jordan did first and better. Um, And I do think watching all these old games, watching Leitner's shot, as much as I could not stand Christian Leitner, watching Leitner's shot against Kentucky, uh, watching David Tyree hold on to the ball as much as you probably hate the Giants in the Super Bowl, it does give a renewed appreciation for the nostalgia power of sports because I'm all about nostalgia in sports. And really, it hit me with Jordan. Like, watching Jordan, I, was, I hadn't seen tape of him in years. I was like, oh, yeah, that, that's what it was. That's what greatness was. And I think that's a pretty freaking powerful thing. And I also think it'll, when sports are back, it will be the biggest breath of fresh air ever. And we will have a renewed appreciation for this thing that we had surrendered for a while. It's not just a game, is it? It's an escape. And that's so corny to say, but it really is. It's why we're all watching. I don't think Tiger King is nearly the hit it is if we're not all stuck inside quarantine. I mean, it's a fine show. But, like, we need – you can't just worry about coronavirus all day. You can't just worry about Donald Trump or Joe Biden all day. You need something. And we we can't go to the gym anymore. We can't eat out anymore. Um, Watching a ball game on TV or watching a ball game in person is just a release. Um, and I, I do. I miss it more than I thought I would. I have watched Tiger King and I watched Tiger Woods Sunday rounds for the 2019 Masters, the 1997 Masters, and I'm working my way through the 2005 Masters right now. How's that holding up? <laughs> Great. I mean, I know what happens and it's still exciting. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, what's cool is you can go on YouTube and you could pull up like, I'm not kidding, Nets Heat 1989. And you can watch some game from 1989. between, And it sounds like, oh, wow, you can really do that, Jeff? You know, thanks, Grandpa. But, like, it's kind of cool to just pick some random game. Like, I was watching Pearl Washington play point guard for the Nets the other day, passing the ball to Buck Williams. That was kind of fun for me. So that kind of stuff at least keeps the spark alive. Who's your favorite athlete as an athlete? And who's your favorite athlete as a person? Are we talking all time? All time. My favorite athlete all time was, um, it started when I was a kid, was Ken Griffey Sr., not Ken Griffey Jr. Um, and it all started because I had his baseball card when I was a kid. And I grew up in a pretty sheltered little town. And Sr. was a really cool-looking guy. And I had this one card. We had a really perfect afro, and he had cool sideburns. And he had his hat sitting atop his afro. And I was like, that's the coolest guy ever. That is the coolest guy ever. And... Um, and then his son, you know, ended up, play, you know, being drafted. And I just thought, all right, this is a great player to freaking love. And my favorite player to cover, there's a guy, he's now an MLB network guy named Sean Casey. And his nickname was The Mayor. He was a first baseman for the Reds for years. He, I was not the reporter, but he's the only player I've ever heard of, ever, who invited members of the media to his wedding. He was the nicest human being in the history. Hey, how's it going? Hey, I remember you. Yeah, hey, how's it going? And those guys... Him and uh, Torrey Hunter, the former twin center fielder. Yeah, I remember. 
Yeah, we're two really special, unique. And also, I love Ken Griffey Jr. Actually, I'll tell you real quick. Ken Griffey Jr., I did a story years and years ago about um, a, a guy in the Reds named Joe Valentine was a pitcher, and he was raised by gay mothers. And this was way before, there, way before this was sort of common. And a lot of the players I talked to about that were really, well, we shouldn't have that in the locker room. And why do we need that? And blah, blah. And I went up to Junior because he was his teammate. And I said, hey, I'm doing this story about your teammate and his parents are gay and blah, blah. I said, how would you feel if you had a gay teammate? And he goes, my best friend is gay. Why would I care? And it was just this moment when all the lesser players around him were like, yeah, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't take that. And Junior, who was a super duper star, was like, my best friend is gay. I'm, what do I care? And uh, I just always, I've always remembered that, that moment before it would have been easy to say that. Good for him. Yeah. Least favorite player? I have a three. I have a holy trinity. Um, <laughs> so number one, obviously, would be John Rocker from my John Rocker experiences. Yeah, sure. and, and if people, people need to Google it, we're not going to do the whole yeah. story, but Google Jeff Perlman, John Rocker, you'll get the story. All right. Who are the other two? Yeah. So uh, number two was uh, Barry Bonds, who I actually, my second book was a biography of Barry Bonds. I've never seen a person go out of his way to treat people badly just for the sport of treating people badly. Uh, he just was not a nice human being. And uh, the third was Will Clark, also a former San Francisco Giant. Say his name who, again. Uh, I think he broke up. Just, oh, sorry. Will, do you remember Will Clark, the first baseman with the Giants? Yeah. Will the yeah. Thrill from Mississippi State. And uh, he was just a – I always found him to be a very mean, dislikable, arrogant human being. So those are my holy trinity of guys I did not enjoy. What's your next book going to be about after the Kobe book and the Laker, Lakers book comes out? Oh, man, I'm, uh, I'm sort of looking around for topics right now. I'm not quite there yet, so I don't uh, – my dream, my dream book is to write a Tupac biography. I grew up a big hip-hop fan and uh, Tupac Shakur, but uh, I don't know if I can – be hard to get a book deal right now for that one, so I'm not sure yet. There's a Beastie Boys Spike Jones thing coming out. You're probably going to be into that, right? Yeah, so, and uh, there's a really good one about Tribe Called Quest, a documentary Tribe Called Quest was done yeah. a few years ago by Michael Rappaport. Yeah, that's my era. That's my era right there. When I was in college, I thought, I didn't like rap much, but I thought Public Enemy was a band that I really respected. Oh, yeah. Um, my kids, are, my, my son is a big hip-hop kid, and I've really raised him on Public Enemy. So, uh, yeah, we're big Public Enemy fans in this house. So you're Jeff Perlman, U of D alum, writer extraordinaire. <laughs> Thank you for joining me on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That was great. Awesome. No, that was fun. Thanks to Jeff. Remember, his next book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty will be released in September of 2020. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Thanks for giving me your time. This is the True Philadelphia Podcast.